Hi coaches, thanks for joining us on another episode of the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. If you've not already picked up a copy of legendary Kentucky men's tennis coach Dennis Emery's new book, Serving Up Winners, 10 Steps to Building Your Program, I recommend you do so as soon as possible. In this podcast, we discuss the traits of the most successful coaches, marketing yourself and your programs, sustaining success over a long period of time, the current state of Division I college athletics, plus a lot more great insights from Coach Emery's career, which he includes in his book. So listen to the podcast, pick up the book, and uh, start applying some of the lessons to your program for the next season. Coach Dennis Emery, welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. Well, thank you, David. Happy to be here. Yeah, well, I'm glad glad we reconnected. I have lots of questions for you here. Uh, I will have properly introduced you in, in the intro um, for this podcast, but you uh, reconnected, letting me know that you've uh, published a, a new book, uh, Serving Up Winners, 10 Steps to Building Your Program. And some of my questions are related to the book, some, some are not, but I'm going to start off with quite a philosophical question, uh, just to, to get us going, get our brains working. Um, I learned from reading your book that you're the youngest uh, Division One head coach uh, in history is that just for tennis or for all sports? At twenty two, no, years? for tennis. Okay. You know, I, I don't think it's for all sports, but for tennis, I went to Austin P University, and you know, my first five years before I went to Kentucky was at Austin P at twenty two years old. Right, right. So I'm interested in what were some of those traits that you believed personality traits that you developed as a young, young man, even a teenager that kind of pointed you in this direction and then allowed you to have a lot of success early on in your career. And, and I'm, I'm not always convinced that we change as much as people say we do. Uh, there are certain traits that we have that are innate. Um, but, but you were, hardwired I believe to be very successful at, at what you did for so many decades so so what are some of those traits how do you believe you developed them and and has your personality changed over the last several decades well I went to Carson Newman College as a as a player and I was recruited at some division one schools Carson Newman was NAIA at that time mm-hmm. and to be you know quite honest I didn't feel like I was good enough I the coaches that were recruiting me, I kind of felt like, uh, you don't know what you're getting into. You know, I'm not as good as you think. And I was determined I was going to play, you know, that was the most important thing to me was to be able to play top six. So I went to Carson Newman, but also went there with the thought of going into the ministry and your senior year in, in Carson Newman, you had to, to take a ministry class, you know, an internship. And uh, after giving my final sermon, the the head minister called me in and he said, hey, you know, it's been great having you. Uh, you seem like you really want to, having heard you preach, you seem like you really want to go into coaching and I would encourage you to do that. Huh. So, so that's how, uh, you know, I kind of got out of the ministry road, went into the coaching road, which I think is what I wanted to do all along. Mm-hmm. There's a quote in the book where uh, David McCullough, I'm big into history. David McCullough is one of the great American history writers. 
And he's, he, somebody asked him, they, they said, Hey, you know, how much time did you spend researching this book? How much time did you spend doing this on this book? And he said, the right question is how much time did you spend thinking about this book? Mm. And, you know, that was me with, with my coaching, with my tennis. I thought about it 24 seven, you know, I, made up my mind. The first thing I wanted to do when I got up in the morning, I wanted my first thought to be about coaching, you know, my players, my team. When I went to bed at night, I wanted my last thought to be about, about coaching. And one of the reasons why I stepped away at 57 was I didn't want my first thought in the morning to be about, co- to be about coaching anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I think you, you're saying, what trait do you have? I, I really felt like, I could focus on, on the tennis a lot. I was lucky to have a wife that allowed me to do that and a family that allowed me to do that. Mm, Okay. And so now that you've had several years to reflect on your coaching career, and like you said, you're putting a lot of thought into this book, trying to remember different players, your relationship with those players, the the various stories um, through the decades, the various matches. Um, But even you as a coach, you know, what, if anything, would you do differently now? If you if you were said Kentucky said, "Hey, Coach Emery, we need you back. We need you to to lead the team tomorrow. We need you to do it for the next five years." What, what if anything, would you do differently? You know, I think I would take a little more time away. You know, as the more I think about it, I was always afraid. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a story, and I, I think it's in the book. in In 1992 we went to the quarterfinals. We won the SEC. I really felt like, look, I'm not the guy to get us to the next level. (laughs) You know, even though we had this great success, I'm not the guy to get us to the next level. And I went and saw our athletic director and I said, listen, you know, I know this sounds crazy, but I think I want to step away. You know, I know we, I know we won the conference. I know we went to the elite eight, but I just don't know that I believe that I can win it all. And he said, look, you know, you're a great coach. He, he was a great coach himself, a great basketball coach. Mm-hmm. And he said, you, you need to step away. You need to take a month. You need to go fishing. You need to develop you know, something else to do with your life, you know, for a little bit. And when you come back, when you come back, your job's going to be here for you. He said, I took a year away uh, from my coaching in basketball and and came back, went to a different school, but stepped back for a year. The point being, I never felt like I could get away from the coaching. And that's something I would do differently. I would, I would try to find a week here, uh, two weeks there, but it always seemed like with everything we had going on, there just wasn't that time. And, and there was, you just have to take it. Mm. Yeah. I know that's a challenge for, for all coaches and you're concerned your competition is, is getting ahead. And even if you get away, you're still in your own head, right? And you're thinking about everything that needs to be done or what you should have done differently the previous season. Is there anything in terms of, um, you know, even uh, on court, say, um, whether it's it's player development or, or with relationships or um, any other aspect of the job that you could say, huh, you know, or, or even just, I mean, you're still involved in, in college athletics and you're seeing how some of those changes have, have impacted the sport, you know, positively, negatively, we can get into that, that later, but, um, 
you know, how might the, ch- the job be different now than when you retired? Or, or again, is it? And, and what would you do, you know, if you were coaching these days? Well, it, it, you know, the one thing I would tell you is my last year in coaching, you know, was 2012. And my last season, we were undefeated in the SEC. And I put a lot of pressure on myself. And in fact, one of uh, one of our athletic directors, not our athletic director, but an associate athletic director came up. We were going to play Vanderbilt the last match. And he said, I hope you don't lose and back into the winning the SEC. And I said, just so you know, there's five teams in the top 10 in the SEC, us being one of them. And if we lose to Vanderbilt, we didn't back in. You know, we beat them all, beat them on the road. And, you know, but that had an impact, you know, kind of on me. Mm-hmm. Um, of, you know, what, look, we're going to go undefeated. Is that enough? <laughs> you know? And then the other thing that happened my last year is Eric Quigley went to the finals of the NCAA tournament and played Steve Johnson in the finals. Huge match because Quigley had 171 wins, which is tied for the most all time with Rick Rudine of Clemson. And Mm -hmm. Steve Johnson had had, I think it was 72 consecutive wins in college, which I think is the record. So whoever won that match was going to, you know, set a record. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately for us, Steve Johnson won it. But, you know, I just felt like I had nothing left to give, you know, at that time. I felt like, my goodness, you know, I've done this 35 years. I've thought about it nonstop. I, you know, I've got to step away. You know, my this isn't good for my health, mm. you know. And the the athletic department, the athletic director, I know it doesn't sound like that. But our athletic director never put any, you know, I never felt pressure from our department Mm -hmm. necessarily to win. It was all self-imposed. And if, you know, I feel like there is more pressure now from the athletic departments, you know, when you're asking what's changed. But I don't feel like, you know, anybody could have put more pressure on themselves than I did. I always, you know, we want my goal was always to go to the Sweet 16, which we did a lot. Mm-hmm. And then see where we could go after that, you know, see how far we could advance after that, whether that was at the national indoors or at the, or at the NCAA outdoors. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, again, in reading your book, I saw uh, that John Calipari, coach Calipari, the, the head men's coach at, at, at Kentucky wrote the forward to your book. And I think every coach, regardless of the sport they coach, uh, would love to be a fly on the wall at, at a Calipari practice um, or get a chance to ask him some, some questions and, and just get a sense of how his mind is thinking about things. What, what are some things that you've picked up from him through the years? Well, you know, this is going to sound weird because it's the same thing I just said about myself. His mind's always going. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's always turning. His greatest trait is that he's always thinking about you know when he meets you it's you know hey that's david mullins i wonder i wonder how he can help us at win at the university of kentucky Mm. you know and he'll find a way he'll find a way that you can help him and so that's really good the the other thing that i picked up from coach calipari and it is in the book is 
I was at practice one day and the compliance person came in before practice and I don't know what she told him, but it wasn't good. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the meeting you wanted to have at three o'clock and he just kind of, you know, shook his head, said, okay. And went on and he went out and coached his practice. And it was as if that conversation had never happened. He was totally able to put that behind him and move right into practice and be devoted to it. 100%. Um, not just coach Calipari, but, uh, one of the things in the book is it's like learning from the masters and, you know, in the job you're in, you know, when you coach at a university, you're meeting a lot of interesting people. So for me, one of those people was Rick Patino, who coached before John Calipari. Another one was Nick Boletari. But the one thing that I noticed about those guys is they never have a bad day. You know, mm -hmm. I've been to, 40 John Calipari practices. I've been to 40 Rick Pitino practices. You know, I've seen Nick teach a lot. Those guys don't have bad days, mm. you know, and when they have bad days, they cover it up with enthusiasm. You know, they just pour on the enthusiasm. And that was something that really stood out with me where it really hit home with me. Uh, it hit home with John Calipari but it really hit home with me with Nick Boletari because, as you know, Nick would teach sometimes it's a thousand an hour, it's fifteen hundred dollars an hour. Mm -hmm. But you know, you're going to get some players that aren't very good for that, and it might be your fourth straight hour on the court or fifth straight hour on the court. He was exactly the same with those people as he was with Andre Agassi, Tommy Haas any of those guys. And I thought that was Nick's. You're asking, what do you learn from John Calipari? That's one thing. But I thought that was Nick's greatest trait was, you know, everybody got his best. And as I've watched, you know, over my 35 years coaching, as I watched the great ones, Harry Hopman, a guy named Pat Etcheberry, who you may or may not be sure. familiar with, you know, who started at the university of Kentucky with, with me. Okay. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, those guys don't have bad days. And, and that for a young coach, I would tell you, try to make sure, you know, that's a good goal to have. You never have bad days. You're never distracted by what's going on outside. Mm, yeah. Amazing. Okay. So with, um, like I said, I've, I received your book a couple of days ago. I've not got all the way through it. I'm going to finish it this weekend. And I, I really recommend it to coaches. It's it's an easy read. It's it's a fun read. You'll get through it in a couple of days, no problem, and, and learn a lot. But I can see chapter nine and chapter 10 in the book. Uh, chapter nine is expand your reach. And then chapter 10 is marketing yourself. Um, can you talk a little bit about both of those and maybe how are they different? Because reading them without reading the chapters, it's like, oh, is that kind of the same thing? Uh, so can you share with us more about that? Sure. You know, let's start with the the fundraising section of that, of that. You know, when I came to the University of Kentucky, you know, we, we were funded, but we weren't funded like the University of Georgia. You know, mm -hmm. we weren't funded like the University of Florida. And so I what I had to do is I had to try to create 
uh, a niche for for myself. You know, the and this ties into the fundraising, okay? I'll, I'll get to that. So what my goal was, I wanted to have the best indoor team in the country. And, you know, the people who kind of followed along behind that were Craig Tiley, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as you know, and then Brian Boland. Mm-hmm. Um, so all those guys got good indoors before they got good outdoors. And it, it only makes sense because, you know, we're – an indoor region. But my vision was I wanted to try to win the NCAA outdoors. I wanted to be the best team indoors before that, you know, as part of that progression. As part of that, I had to fundraise the money for our indoor tennis center. And so what I did was I sat down, I put together a committee of five people. We went, you know, we sat down and the first meeting, a guy told me, he said, Look, we have a guy in our town who still lives here, Hillary Boone. He was your team captain in 1939 before he went off to World War II. And you should go sit down and talk to Hillary. And so we did that. And Hillary ended up giving us $500,000. And, you know, I'll go into this just briefly. Mm -hmm. He sat down with me and our athletic director and he said, I'm going to give you $500,000 in stock. And our athletic director said, thank you very much. It's a great gift. And he goes, the building's a million. And he goes, I know it's a million. He goes, listen, Cliff Hagen, who was the athletic director, Cliff, I'm just one person. I'm giving you $500,000. And I'm just one person. You've got the entire weight of the University of Kentucky behind you. Don't you think you could match that? And and the athletic director said, well, you know, remember, this is 1986. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, there's no precedent for this. And so, no, we would not be able to do it. And literally, the gentleman took his pen off the paper and he said, really, there's no precedent. And the athletic director said, yeah, we'll we'll match it. (laughs) (laughs) That's how we were able to build our, our, my first fundraising. That was how it all happened. And it happened, you know, within no time at all, because, you know, our athletic director was open to doing it and the donor was smart enough to know how to leverage that gift that he was giving 500,000. I don't know what that would be worth in today's dollars, but probably 1.5 or something. Um, So that was part of this goal of becoming the best indoor team in the country. The mm-hmm. second part was uh, your all's predecessor, David Benjamin. We had the national indoors, but the national indoors at that time was played outdoors. It was played at Pepperdine outdoors. Mm-hmm. And so I sp- sat down with Kent DeMars and David, and we had one of my players owned a tennis club that had a thousand seats in it. Uh, you know, which, doesn't ever happen as you know as you know in a public uh, you know a private club like that but we ended up hosting the national indoors for 18 years so a big part of us becoming one of the best teams in the country indoors was being able to host that fundraise the money for that we had a committee that raised that money for for the tournament every year and you know so that's how the fundraising impacted our program, I guess, is, is what I'm saying. Okay. 
So that's the expand your reach part, and then market. No, that was that's actually more the fundraising part. The okay. expanding your reach was. I I was asked to coach a girl named Susan Sloan, and Susan was a hundred and forty in the world when I started coaching her. Very very good player, but hundred and forty in the world on the women's tour. She was only fifteen, so her best years theoretically we're out in front of her but you don't know that always particularly back then and I took her and I worked with her you know two to four hours a day for five six years she got to be top 18 in the world three consecutive years on the women's tour so expanding your reach kind of the gist of that chapter is what you can learn outside of the college tennis you know out Outside of just coaching your guys, what could you learn? And what mm -hmm. I learned from Susan, you know, was how does a champion think? You know, when when someone's going out to play Chris Everett on center court at the U.S. Open, you know, what's the thought process behind that? Mm -hmm. And then as as I got to be where our players were moving out of the university and having success on the tour, Greg Van Inberg went to the semis of the Wimbledon doubles. He went to the quarters another time. Jesse Witten got to the third round and lost him four sets to Djokovic. But what I learned from Susan, I tried to, to tell those guys, listen, when you go play and you're going to go play, mm -hmm. when you go play, this is the way you have to think. This is the way you have to begin to process information. Um, yeah. Off of the, off of this a little bit. And, uh, and I'm sorry, there's, I think, a really good part of the book is I spent a lot of time with Jim Lair because of uh, Susan and Nick Boletari. I ended up spending a lot of time with Jim Lair. And he did some work with Ray Mancini. And it's, it's the best stuff I've ever heard. The, the, part of the, the part that's in the book is Jim Lair called I mean, Ray Mancini called Jim Lair and said, I want you to come help me prepare for this fight. And the, the problem was Boom Boom Mancini had killed a Korean in the ring his last fight. And now it's two years later. He's mm. coming back. And he told Jim, he said, Jim, I'm willing to work, pay you all this money to work with me because I don't want to lose the fight before the fight happens. And, you know, a lot, lot of parts to the story but one of them was the part that i liked was jim had to return to bradenton florida and mancini called him one night and he said jim i had a negative thought in the ring today and jim lair said right that's interesting how many of these negative thoughts did you have he said jim i had one i had one i had a negative thought in the ring and jim lair said you know, not to Ray, but he said, I thought back to all these negative things that are going on on the court with these people. And he said, Mancini told him, he said, Jim, I don't think you understand. When you're negative, you get slow. When you're slow, you get hit. When you get hit, you get cut. When you get cut, you lose the fight. It's over. This guy that I'm going to fight you know, if he sees that I'm negative at all, 
he's going to take advantage of that. He's going to cut me and he's going to beat me. Mm-hmm. And Jim just, you know, Jim related that so well to tennis. But that's that's another thing that I worked with with Susan Sloan in that expanding your reach part of the book that you're talking about. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. And, and what a great story. Um, with back to the, the fundraising side of things. So again, we have a lot of young coaches early in their tenure who, who listen to this podcast and, and we've got coaches that are coming out of their college tennis career, just like yourself at 22. So they're 22, 23, 24 years old. Um, they haven't necessarily really seen what their coach does, right? They they see their coach at practice and right. trips, but they don't really see what's happening behind the scenes and and the various headaches, but also say the fundraising side of things. So they believe they're getting into this job just to recruit and coach players and manage a team culture. And then they're told they have to fundraise $20,000 for this or 10,000 or a million for replacing the tennis courts. How would you advise young coaches getting started in their career to start developing some of those skills and and how they might like, what are the the first actions they should be taking, say, in the first three, six, nine, 12 months on campus when they've just arrived in a new place? They don't have a community. They don't know anybody, really. They're they're in a brand new state. Any advice you'd have for that coach? Yeah, well, one thing I would say is there's key people in every community and you need to really connect with those people and you don't need to connect with them because you want them to give you money. You need to connect with them because you respect what they're doing in tennis in the community. Almost um, all the people, a, a lot of the people who I fundraise with are not who I started out to talk to. You know, they're basically a friend of a friend, <laughs> you know, somebody that yeah. has led me to another guy. Uh, one thing I wish I had done more of early in my career is I wish I had played more with people in the community. I wish I had taken an hour or two a week to identify a couple people and play with those people. Uh, you know, just give them a give them free lessons and then you have to be lessons. You know, doubles is even better than singles because you're impacting three people. But I, I do a lot of this right now in my fundraising. Now I have time to do it where when I was coaching, you know, I didn't have that time, but I wish I would have made a little more time to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, people, they like to be on the court with you. You know, it's good to go to lunch with people, they'd rather be on the court with you would be it. That's been my, uh, my experience. Um, um, when I went into the fundraising aspect of what I was doing, one of the things I made up my mind was I was never going to say no to anybody. If somebody came to me and said, Hey, you want to go to lunch? Yep, absolutely. Hey, would you want to go to the horse race? Yep. I'll do it. You know, whoever it was, you know, I made up my mind, I'm doing it. I'm going to build this network. I'm going to do it, you know, through personal relationships with people. Uh, one of the things I mentioned to you, we've raised about $11 million for our new facility, tennis facility, which is great, except the facility is going to cost 24, you know, so we're basically halfway there. But, um, you know, our former players, 
one of our former players gave one and a half million for that. Another former player gave 1.2. Uh, we've had a couple players who've given, you know, 175 to 250,000 and, you know, but they did that because they had a really good experience at the university and, you know, we didn't let it, it drift off too far, you know, people, mm-hmm. you know, they come back, you know, but if you can kind of stay in contact with them, set up that mailing list, that email list, set up that text uh, phone chain where, you know, you can reach out to 150 people at a time. Hey, we're playing, you know, in the SEC, like today, our team's playing in the SEC quarterfinals, you know, watch it. You know, you can watch it here. You can do this. Personal relationships, you know, to summarize, personal relationships are very, very important. And identifying who you think those people are. Just like, for example, you know, when we raised the money for our first indoor facility, one guy mentioned one name of a person I'd never heard of. And that led, you know, to us being able to build our indoor facility with one donor. (laughs) One donor. (laughs) Yeah. You just don't know. You just don't know. You don't know. Okay. We'll move. I know, and we're we're jumping from topic to topic, and many of these are, are chapters within your book. But you know, I want to move on to recruiting a little bit. So, coaches again these days they have so many tools at their fingertips to to help with this process. Early in in your coaching career, those tools were not available. But if you strip all those tools away and you just you know are watching a student athlete say for the or a prospective student athlete for the first time. You don't know anything about their results. You know they're at this event. They're obviously a good player because they've qualified for this event. What are some of the things that you're looking for uh, on the court? Or are there certain, again, traits that they're they're exhibiting on the court that's catching your attention or that you're you're intentionally looking for while observing them play? Well, I always look first for a player's talent, not their character. And I know that's different than a lot of coaches, but I always felt like talent was such a big thing being able to play in the SEC. You know, you had to be talented enough. It was going to be very tough to character your way up to the top, you know, of the SEC as you're competing with, you know, all these great foreign athletes. Uh, So I tried to look for certain things in the talent area And then I would come back and see, does that person qualify for us from a character standpoint? Mm -hmm. To answer your question, what did I look for? One of the things I look for a lot at the end of my coaching career, um, I had two guys who did this, you know, as good as anybody we ever had. Uh, So they were not one dimensional. It was Jesse Witten, who got to the finals of the NCAAs in 2002 as a freshman, you know, one of only five freshmen to go to the NCAA singles final in the modern era. And then Eric Quigley in 2012, who also lost in the finals of the NCAA. But what I looked for with those guys were, was the ability to go from, from defense to offense. And the, the reason I did that was, I felt like so many times players end up being one dimensional. They end up being 
only able to come forward and do things, or they end up only being able to stay back and grind you out. And when we had Witten and Quigley, who both had big forehands, but they were able to cover the corners, get out of the corners, you know, go neutral and then go on offense. And that's what I was looking for. Another big part of that was I felt like if somebody can do that, they're going to be able to do a lot of other things. <laughs> you know, if they're able, you know, if they have that skill set, they're going to be able to do a lot of other things. So that was something I really looked for. Another thing I looked for was could people return from different positions on the court or no matter who they played, no matter what they were doing, were they always playing in the same position on the court? I, you know, I didn't, I didn't like that. I thought that showed a lack of flexibility in their game and not saying I wouldn't recruit them. You know, I just, I, I liked, I like to have that more flexibility there. Yeah. And then from, from the character standpoint, were there any, questions you would ask them what what additional research might you do they've established talent wise they're good enough to play in the sec um but how would you research their the character side of things from from that point forward well you know for example you know we have cedric kaufman who played for me for four years and is now you know coaching a team that's top five in the country Mm -hmm. and when I went down to recruit Cedric at the Voluntary Tennis Academy. I went down to recruit somebody else, actually. <laughs> and, you know, they would tell me, you know, that guy's a good player, but he doesn't have Cedric's character. You know, you need to recruit Cedric, you know. And I, I went to the high school counselor there and I said, hey, I'm here checking on so-and-so. By the way, you know, have you heard of Cedric Kaufman? You know, he's somebody you're going to want to recruit. You know, so when you begin hearing that and you watch somebody play with that intensity level that he played at, Mm -hmm. you you know, that that jumped out at you. The other thing that and it's in the book. uh, And I, I don't know how I don't know that this is really a good answer for you, but I went on my gut feeling a lot with players. I had a guy. Uh, who I recruited named Bruno Agustinelli and Bruno, you know, had been injured. He, you know, he wasn't ranked high, but I went up and watched him play. And I thought, you know, this guy just, he doesn't say much, but I just feel good about him. And, mm-hmm. you know, he ended up being ranked two in the country. And really the only offer he had was the university of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And, Ended up playing Davis Cup for Canada. Won a huge five-set match for Canada. Um, You know, but steadily got better through his time. But I just had a gut feeling on him. Eric Quigley was a good player. He's another guy who was very quiet at that age. So he wasn't demonstrative on the court in any way. But you just felt like this is a guy who's determined to win, Mm -hmm. like Bruno was. And... So I looked for guys who had that focus. I wasn't necessarily looking for the loudest guy out there. I wasn't looking for the guy that was pumping his fist the most. I was looking for the guy who was able to keep his focus. You know, sometimes people develop that more in college, you know, where, where they, where they can do both. They can keep their focus and, and Mm -hmm. do that. But 
two great examples for me were Bruno and Eric Quigley, two of the best players we ever had. And, you know, quiet but strong character. I, I guess I guess the way to say it would be humble but confident. And that's what I was always looking for. Yeah. I like it. Humble but confident. Um, so Coach Emery, now that you're kind of on the other side, well, I don't want to say the other side, you're you're on the administrative side of things now as an associate AD at, at the University of Kentucky and, and helping with them a lot of fundraising projects. Um, you know, you're you're so immersed in this world, you've seen name, image, and likeness uh, come along. You've seen the conference realignment, obviously, OU and, and Texas are about to join the SEC here. Um, there's lots of other things going on, uh, change in leadership at the NCA. What What are your thoughts on the current state of Division I college athletics? And are you concerned or hopeful or a little bit of both about the future, and, and especially as it relates to Olympic sports and more specifically college tennis? Well, I think everybody needs to be a little concerned because we just continue to go into uncharted territory, you know, I mean, and doing it at a much rapid, much more rapid rate than you would think. But at the same, at the same time, my goodness, you know, the opportunities that are out there for the student athletes now, they were never there when I was coaching. So, you know, I'm, super optimistic that you know college tennis for example is going to be an even greater pathway to the pros than than it has been in the past and in the past i thought it was a a great pathway to the pros but as you know more and more opportunities open up in college tennis uh you know the thing that i love we have a challenger on our campus you know that i started 30 years ago it's the second longest running challenger in, in the United States on both the men's and the women's side. Um, I think the exposure that the players get in those events, you know, is, is you just can't put a price tag on that. So I, I see that growing more and more, I think in the future. So I'm, I'm super optimistic, you know, I'm a little jealous walking into some of the facilities <laughs> that I walk into, sure. you know, that are $25, $30 million facilities. Yep. Um, you know, everybody just kind of continues to escalate that. And and I think that's I think that's great. The thing that I would love to see college tennis do is integrate more in to the regular tennis community, you know, open up their facility for tournaments, uh, open up, you know, open up their facilities to do things like that, you know, not just be a silo sitting there. So, and, and we've always tried to do that here. We host the, the state closed. We host the state high school championships. Mm -hmm. All those things are just great exposure. I'm sorry. I, I hope that hopefully that answered your question. No, it, it does, and and I'm glad to hear you're you're optimistic. So that makes me feel a, a little bit better because uh, I, uh, I I struggle to sleep sometimes just just worrying about the the landscape. And um, you know, you speak to athletic directors, and they're talking about a lot of the boosters' money now heading towards these name, image, likeness collectives, and and that they're not necessarily giving to the athletic department as a whole, who are able to then decide how they want to distribute those dollars and what is the trickle down effect 
um, you know, the the court cases that are occurring right now with with, um, you know, student athletes, former student athletes suing the NCA and, and potentially uh, looking to be, um, you know, counted as, as employees uh, in the future. And I'm not sure they're really um, thinking about the long term consequences of that and, and what it could do to to uh, to the Olympic sports. So, um, look, I, I work extremely hard six seven days a week on behalf of college tennis and and um but uh but look it's it's part of my job to worry right uh but <laughs> there's there's uh there's lots of of great things going on and like you said it's just the rapid change i think our our heads are spinning with how quickly things are changing and and maybe that slows down you know in the coming years maybe some of these uh issues are resolved in the courts or or by the federal government and we start to slow down a little bit um, and can kind of find our feet again. And, OK, this is the new world we live in. This is the new reality. What does that look like for longer term planning? I mean, at the ITA, we used to do five year strategic plans. I mean, we're on 18 month strategic plans now because the world has just shifted right. so in such a short amount of time. So, um, so yeah, it's um, it's lots to think about. But uh like I said, glad to hear you're optimistic. Well, I can't speak for everybody. You know, I can, I can speak at our university, for example. Our guy's super sharp. You know, our RAD is one of the longest tenured ADs in the country. It, you know, just he's got it together. You know, our, our overall sports program last year at the University of Kentucky, we were ninth, you know, in overall sports. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that shows you where he's at, his level of commitment to all the sports. But the one thing I would say is, you know, these guys, not necessarily RAD, but the people who are running the NCAA and stuff, they may not get it right the first cut, Yeah. you know, but they're going to get it right. And there's, they're going to get it right. I'm, I'm confident they're going to work through this NLI stuff, mm -hmm. you know, to where it's not, to the NCAA or the school's disadvantage, they're going to work it out to where it's to the school's advantages, you know, and, and I'm, I'm pretty confident that that'll, that'll happen. Good. Okay. Well, thank you for let's, let's uh, end the podcast on that positive note, but I definitely right. promote the book here for anybody watching on, on YouTube and, and coach Emery. So where can uh, coaches find this book if they want to purchase a copy? Well, you can go on Amazon. It's twenty dollars, and it's it's written for college tennis coaches. Yeah, that's yep. the that's the target market. And so, and I'm, my email address is d e n n i s g e m e r y at aol dot com. If anybody has any questions about the book, you know, I, I hope they'll feel free to email me. Great. Well, thank you for that kind offer. And thank you for writing the book. Uh, just the fact that this exists now for this current generation of coaches, but also future generations to be able to pick up a book, have a starting point, you know, but get them to to think critically about some of these topics and, and get off to a much faster start than maybe you or I did in, in our coaches coaching careers. Right. We're trying to feel feel around and, and trying to work things out on our own. So this is fantastic and look forward to promoting it to, to, to all our coaches here in the coming weeks and months. 
Thank you so much, David. And thank you for all you do. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. All righty. Coaches, just a quick reminder that our ITA College Tennis Coaches Convention will be held during the NCAA Combined Championships from May 17th to the 20th in Lake Nona, Florida. If you would like to learn more or register, please visit convention.itatennis.com. I hope to see many of you there.